From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Born in 1547, Spanish writer Miguel de Cervantes lived much of his life in hardship. He served in the Spanish Navy from the age of 23, was wounded in battle, and after five years of service, was captured by pirates who held him, hoping for ransom, for five years. He earned his living not as an author, but as a soldier, accountant and tax collector. In 1605, at 58 years old, Cervantes would see the first part of his masterwork, the ingenious gentleman Don Quixote of La Mancha, published. Along with its second part, published in 1615, the novel would become a near-instant success. Inspiring music by Strauss, art by Picasso, as well as countless other writers from Mark Twain to Charles Dickens, Gustav Flaubert to Tennessee Williams, Vladimir Nobokov to Salman Rushdie, Don Quixote has been translated into more than 50 languages and is the best-selling non-religious text of all time. Joining me today is William Eggington, author, philosopher, literary scholar and professor at Johns Hopkins University. His book, The Man Who Invented Fiction, takes us behind the life of the author to discover the inspiration, impact and legacy of this extraordinary 17th century novel. This is the book we'll be discussing today, but William Eggington is also the author of What Would Cervantes Do?, written with David R. Castillo, and his next book, which comes out this summer, is The Rigor of Angels, Borges, Heisenberg, Kant, and the Ultimate Nature of Reality. We're not shying away from the big questions today, folks. This is a fascinating look at the first ever novel. Professor Eggington, thank you so much for joining me on Not Just the Tudors. I'm really excited to talk to you about Don Quixote and about Cervantes and all the interesting questions it throws up. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Susanna. It's really a pleasure to be here. For those who haven't read it, could you perhaps start by telling us a little bit about the story of Don Quixote? All right. So the story of Don Quixote, published in 1605 originally, is about a man who is of a particular class in Spanish society at the time, or really a state. Namely, he is what's called an Hidalgo, literally a son of someone or a son of something. And so he has some vestiges of nobility in his blood, but his family has run completely out of money and his estate is largely abandoned. And this has been, according to what we learn in the first page, because he has fallen into the habit of buying way too many books and reading them, consuming them avidly. And they all tend to be books of the same kind, which is books about knights errant and damsels in distress and giants and monsters and the like. And he's completely convinced himself, as Cervantes says, his brain is dried up out from so much reading, that not only are all these stories true, 
but that he himself is destined to be the next great knight errant who will enter onto the scene in modern day Spain and right wrongs, avenge bad actors, and turn the world back into its proper form. And so he begins a series of adventures, and Cervantes just has the greatest fun spinning these out over many chapters, and in fact soon adds a sidekick, famously Sancho Panza, physically very much the opposite of Quixote, who's gaunt and tall, and Sancho Panza, who's rotund and small. And this odd couple go on a road journey together over the course of many chapters and ultimately over the course of two books, because Cervantes will come back 10 years later and write, in some ways, even more successful second part of the story. Why do you think it captured the imagination so quickly? The question is a very good one. Why this particular book and why at this particular time? It became one of the first, not the absolute first, but one of the first genuine international bestsellers. It was pirated immediately, so they had to deal with pirated copies, just like we do with music, for example, today, and books, of course. It was translated into a variety of languages. These famous characters were appearing in processions in different countries around the world, and it made it across the Atlantic right away during the new trade and, of course, colonialism that the Spaniards established. The book is extraordinarily funny, and Cervantes had really developed Develop a particularly caustic wit. He was far from the first to do it. He was one who combined this satirical voice. In fact, philosophers many years later would say that he invented a particular and new modern form of irony. He sewed it into an image of the world that was completely new. And what is completely new about it is that there's a high form of realism. These extremely unrealistic, it would seem to us, characters march about a world that readers of the time, really, they could be brushing shoulders with themselves. People that they would recognize not just character types, but real detailed, rich characters that they would recognize from their own towns, from their own city squares. The other thing is Cervantes was able to flavor all of that rich characterization in his writing with unbelievable loads of personal experience. He had traveled the world. He knew a variety of languages. He fought in wars. He was a genuine war hero. In fact, he had suffered extraordinary disappointments. He'd lived in captivity for five years in Northern Africa. He had seen different cultures and experienced the way that people tend to demonize each other. And towards the end of his life, which is when he would have this extraordinary creative burst, he was producing books that were informed by, fueled by all of that extraordinary experience. So you've given us already, therefore, a sense of context, both in Cervantes' own life at the time when he wrote it, but more broadly, does the novel speak to the political and cultural climate of Spain at the time? Very much does. And part of the reason, and this is what in the book that you referred to, The Man Who Invented Fiction, is in part, it's a biography of his life, it's in part an explanation of all the work that he did and why it's so important and continues to be so important in the modern day, but it's also an interpretation of that work. And by way of that explanation of why is it so powerful, why do we need it today, and why did I call somewhat hyperbolically in the title, Cervantes is the man who invented fiction. And part of the reason why is that I consider what we understand to be fiction today, which is a form of interaction with the world where we understand that what we're receiving is not technically true and yet at the same time we treat it as if it were true for a certain amount of time and that this requires a sort of internal division that we modern readers have become very good at. That all of this in fact took place at this particular moment in time precisely because of a series of geopolitical changes that Cervantes was very much at the heart of. 
So he's born in the middle of the 16th century. It's the middle of the time that historians have referred to as a period of extraordinary social political expansion, in particular in this country, in Spain. Spain was going from a relative backwater, a border land with a different empire, to becoming in some ways, and at times by certain measures, the largest empire the world had or has ever seen, expanding everywhere around the globe. Now, very quickly overextending itself, very quickly falling into dead and repeated bankruptcies. But what Cervantes was on the cusp of or on the front lines of was a new series of if you will, cultural wars, not just actual wars that he was part of, but cultural wars where an expanding metropolis was encountering these different cultures, encountering its own peripheries and edges and trying to deal with them in quite, we would say today, insidious ways through demonization of others, through dealing with its own internal problems of coherence by looking for scapegoats within its own society, religious, ethnic, even proto-racial scapegoats. And Cervantes was extraordinarily prescient in understanding how this kind of scapegoating is both damaging to one's own and to others' humanities and how it's functioning in a very cynical way to sew together a society around really acts of cultural violence. At the beginning of his life, he was, from the perspective of his own states and religions ideologies, he was an idealist. He believed in everything that the Inquisition and the Spanish crown, the papacy ultimately, in whose forces he went to war for, told him. And certainly he believed himself a fervent Catholic until the end of his days. And yet at the same time, here he was believing as hard as he could, risking his life for these ideological movements and then coming back and finding one after another time he's being personally disappointed, he's being betrayed by the values that he upholds. And instead of just becoming bitter and incorporating all of these disappointments into his own way of living, he turned them into an art of writing, where he essentially wrote books about the fundamental differences between how we see the world and what the world brings back to us. That's at the heart of his greatest book, but it's really at the heart of all of his books. And it's about disappointment. The word for that is desengaño in Spanish, which has wonderful richness of meanings. Desengaño means, yeah, disappointment, but it also means disillusionment. So it's finding truth in that disappointment and also finding moments of comedy, deep searing comedy in it as well. So the character of Don Quixote is, in other words, inspired by Cervantes' own disappointment, his own regret, but he's channeling that into this amazing literary character. Yeah, into this character whose great comic moments often happen precisely when he's misinterpreting the world, right? So what Don Quixote does that's different, and this goes to the heart of what I say was required for something like what we understand to be fiction, to be invented, to be created, to become as powerful as it was today, is that Don Quixote is not a book that simply takes accurate snapshots or pictures of the world, right? What it does is it takes pictures of how people picture the world, and then it compares those. And that, by necessity, leads to explorations of where people get things wrong, how we go about getting things wrong. But in order to create that series of images to compare, using words to do so, it necessarily produces what we now as readers and experiencers of modern fiction experience as character depth, experience as 
moments of blindness where we can see the way a character sees and experience the horizons of that character's inability to understand the situation that he's gotten or she's gotten herself into and at the same time divide ourselves and can see from a different perspective aha this is the situation that this character's gotten him or herself into. And those distinctions, those different frameworks, and at times in teaching this novel, my students and I have counted up to seven very complex interlaced and interacting levels of distinction between frame, interior frame, these kind of telescoping frame situations that Cervantes creates. That kind of telescoping interior depth is what we now interpret as getting a character and all of its complexity right, understanding the deep psychology of characters. And what you see early in the 17th century, so 400 plus years ago, is in one kind of extraordinary creative moment, one author getting all of those tropes into one book, giving us the platform from which modern understanding of characters and fictional worlds can develop. What kind of writing would Cervantes himself had read then? Does his style speak at all to that literary inheritance or is it something wholly new that he's doing? No, it's absolutely a work of synthesis, a work of reflection. He was an absolute polymath when it came to reading. As far as we can tell, somewhat of an autodidact. He definitely got some schooling as the child in an itinerant family looking around in this kind of newly expansive economy of Spain in the middle of the 16th century. He knew the plays of Terence. He definitely learned Latin, the Commedia dell'arte from Italy. He had read all of the works of popular fiction that Don Quixote is ostensibly there to skewer, which are the romances of chivalry. He knew all of those by heart. So he knew the popular literature of his time. He knew the theater, which was the most important innovation in Spain culturally. This was in one century or in less than a century, what had been a courtly, highly what we would consider to be very stilted entertainment. And on the other, a popular kind of raucous form of street entertainment. These had come together to form a popular theater that had penetration of up to 90% of the urban population going to theaters that were set up. Unlike in case of England, these were really not constructed, but rather pieced together from interior courtyards and cities so that relatively wealthy people with their apartments would sell two other wealthy people, the front rows from their windows to look out into the courtyard to see what was created. And then that these became semi-permanent spaces for this extremely popular art form. And Cervantes, he was not only an avid reader, he loved going to the theater. He describes going to popular rural pop-up theater when he was growing up. And the lessons of how to build a character on stage with little more than a board and a curtain pulled across it, if even that, and some good narration and some good poetry, this sunk in deep. So this was also another one of the literary influences that led to his creation. In fact, one of the things that I argue is the depth of his characterizations and precisely that relief that he creates between background and characters conceptualized as almost masks that one steps into and then shares the limitations of you have to see out through those characters' eyes, as it were. All of this comes very much from his incorporating the art of the theater into narrative form. 
because ultimately what he became extremely good at was narrative. But he tried his hand at absolutely everything, including theater, and wrote a selection of plays and published a selection of plays, I think it was around 1613, a couple years before he died, that he called Eight Comedia, which are the longer plays, and Eight Interludes, never to be represented, which was another little joke. But he actually wrote theater that he intended people to read and to think about the very art of theater. That's interesting. So he's very much drawing from that experience of seeing drama in terms of creating narrative. And is he also turning the kind of chivalric romances that he would have read on their head? Very much so, because he claims, which is a little bit disingenuous, or maybe even a lot disingenuous, that the only purpose in writing Don Quixote, and he creates these interior characters who continue to spit forth this ostentation on his part, the only purpose is ridiculing the awful literature of the century before him, right? There's these ridiculous stories of knighthood, and he insists on this, and we're very obviously not to take his word for it whatsoever. Although, I have to say, generations of scholars have said, this must be what it means, because Cervantes tells us this is what it means. But of course, you can't take Cervantes seriously, ever, under any circumstance. And so, yes, he is turning the world on its head. The world is represented in books, but it's much deeper, more interesting what he's doing. In fact, he's taking the values that are predominant, that are being broadcast, that are being pummeled into people by the society of his time, the values of honor, but not, Cervantes would say, real honor, not honor like valor and sticking by one's words, the very empty honor of the honor code, which had to do with proving something which is completely unprovable, which is the sexual purity of the women in your family and the fact that your ancestry doesn't have a stain, a taint of Jewish or Muslim blood in it, that you come from old Christian background, which was completely unprovable. And so all of this created a spirit of paranoia at the time. And what Cervantes' brilliant move was to say the kind of values that we're investing in with such extraordinary pathos are basically the equivalent of these silly myths of Christian romance. And believing in the one is the same as believing in giants and believing in wizards and everything else like that. But he couldn't come out and say that. But you could put it into something like fiction. And that's what he was doing. So can I talk a little bit about classification with you and press on this word fiction? Because we're thinking about Quixote as a novel when 17th century Spain doesn't have such a term for prose fiction. And Cervantes, although you have just told me not to take anything he said seriously, but he called it an historia or a history. So he's sort of aligning the work with something real as opposed to something artificial. Is it fair to say there's something essentially true about Don Quixote? I think Cervantes knew that there was something essentially true about it. But he is, of course, just as you're indicating in your question, he's playing games with the distinctions between history, historia, which is in Spanish telling a story, una historia. But history also means our word for history, historia. And he, in very famous passages that, in fact, years or centuries later, Jorge Luis Borges will also borrow and make fun of in his own book about a man who tried to rewrite the Quixote verbatim without ever actually copying it. Pierre Menard, author of the Quixote, the passages that Borges compares are ones in which Cervantes is precisely playing that distinction between history, something else, poetry, which would be the opposing term in Aristotle's poetics, which Cervantes, of course, knew very well, and something new that's coming out of this mixture, this fusion between the truth of history and what Aristotle had called the kind of deeper, greater philosophical truths of something like poesis. Because that's what Aristotle 
wrote, and that's what in the translations and commentaries of Aristotle came through ultimately to Cervantes, is that history tells facts the way they occurred. Poetry doesn't necessarily correspond to something that really happened per se, but has the potential of telling a greater truth. And what Cervantes is doing is by what he says, everything that you're reading here is absolutely true, and yet puts those words in the mouth of a character who is absolutely and obviously not a real character. What Cervantes is doing is getting to something new, which is fiction, a kind of truth, you could call a subjective truth, a truth about how characters inhabit the world and inhabit their own perspectives on the world and necessarily over and over again fall into both disputes with other characters interpreting the world who have different experiences, but also over and over again get their ideas about the way reality should be found around the shoals of how reality actually is. It's so interesting for me, coming from the perspective of 16th century England, where you've got Philip Sidney in his defence of Posey saying, to write great history, the historian must also be a poet. And on the other hand, you've got Cervantes saying the same thing, but sort of turned on its head. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. They're both being inspired by some of the same philosophical texts, of course, and engaging in some ways similar poetic projects, which is breaking new bounds, bounds that in the sense of interpreting reality in fictive or poetic ways that are going to create a new way of reading the world. It's an exciting time to analyze, to read, to try and come to terms with precisely because these massive geopolitical changes, which are literally changing the world that people are inhabiting, as well as changing their understanding of that world, are intermeshing with generations of writers in particular, but plastic artists as well, who are then having to react to this changing knowledge of the world and this changing horizon of the world and doing so in ways that will continue to reverberate in our own literary traditions up to today. Yes, and I want to think a bit more about those changes in just a second. Sing, muses. Sing to me a history of Olympus and the deathless gods who govern earth, sea and sky. That is Zeus's command. It's the Ancients from History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host, and every month on the podcast, we're taking a deep dive into the Olympian gods. None of them are as simple or as single-faceted as we've kind of reduced them to in our heads when we think about the gods of the pantheon who do one thing each. With world-leading experts, we'll be telling the dramatic story of who they are. Aphrodite was the goddess of love and sex and passion and specifically she was considered often to be love itself. Their myths and their meanings. Hephaestus was already there and that he split Zeus's head with an axe in order to liberate Athena from Zeus's head. And how they've influenced the course of history. Imagine ourselves back in the footsteps of people who are trying to explain and understand a world around them. A world which is not fair or just. That gets us into absolute key facet of how to understand the ancient Greek gods, which is that they are not good people. Join us as we explore some of the most fascinating deities history has ever known. Listen and follow on the ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Hold up. 
I'm Afwa Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love she Cleopatra. is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for Pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's Nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. I was just struck by the way that you say that the act of the reader is of being within and without the story we're reading. This idea that we've been talking about already in terms of the distancing of framing and how we approach that. But that reading is therefore kind of foreign because it exists on the page and not in our own lives. And yet we're somehow intimately connected. And it seems that you're suggesting that fiction perhaps all writing, but particularly fiction, is an act of collaboration between the author and the reader. For a start, is that what you're saying? And how do you think that act of collaboration changes over time? Can we imagine differences in the experience of readers 400 years ago and our experience of reading this today? Absolutely. And to go back to the first part of your question, in some sense, it always has to be a collaboration because imagine the hypothetical opposite, right? Where you have authors introducing completely new ways or different linguistic forms to populations whose receptive abilities absolutely never change. And all you ultimately get after a generation or two is complete gibberish. So authors are, yes, teaching, reading populations, but also learning from them and reading populations are developing new cognitive tools as a result of different medial forms that are arising and different genres and styles that are arising. So these skills and practices of dealing with culture, be it spectacle, be it reading, be it being read to in public, these are developing, I would argue, an unconscious level in populations all the time. And one of the specific results of not just Cervantes's innovation, but he was, I argue, really at the forefront of this and one of the most effective in producing these changes precisely because of how incredibly popular his books became and how widely they were disseminated is what you referred to in the first part of your question as this ability of the reader to divide him or herself, viewing something or inhabiting something simultaneously from within and from without. This internal division is something that the philosophers of the early 18th century in Germany who went back and read some of the texts from what we now call the early modern period and in particular were deeply impressed by Cervantes, what they argued was the founding of a new way of seeing the world, which they called philosophical irony. This irony is at the heart of a character who can manifest itself as two sometimes opposing truths. And what they argued is that the reader who's become fluent in these skills and practices, therefore also has to be doing that and has to be able to make this kind of a transformation of his or her own subjective self 
all the while. And what I argued over a variety of books and a series of books, actually long before I wrote The Man Who Invented Fiction, was that this ability of subjects to divide themselves into something like a within and without is also necessary for modern philosophy. It is the basis of what we call epistemology and the development of modern thought. And it's absolutely essential for understanding representative democracy, but also the ideologies around which repressive totalitarian states have developed themselves and which individual actors or agents within a larger social body can both inhabit the concrete space, the social space that they're inhabiting at any given time, and at the same time, imagine themselves as members in some kind of an abstract symbolic space as well. And in fact, are willing to sacrifice the one in kind of absurd ways at times, right? So that's the bigger political philosophical picture and why I think that fiction is so important. Our fictional worldview is essential to how we have actors in modern states functioning today. It seems to be something that's essential for understanding how that works and for analyzing what are the impulses that lead us to behave in ways that are sometimes iniquitous to our own interests. That's so fascinating. So the idea is that fiction itself and the modes of thinking that it produces or demands of us is absolutely the basis for what Benedict Anderson called imagined communities, the idea of nations. And back to this idea of collaboration then, if we think about how that has changed over time, one point I wanted to ask you about, you said earlier this is a very funny novel. Is it still funny? Do we still laugh at the same points? Because it seems to me, I've spent some time thinking about fools, natural fools at the Tudor court, and we get these records, chronicles that say the things they said And they seem deeply, deeply unfunny at this point in time, presumably because we don't have the sort of frame of reference. This would be a good example. If I said Barnard's Castle, for a bunch of people in the UK, that's something that's going to make them laugh because we had a political advisor to the prime minister who, during lockdown, when we weren't allowed to go anywhere, went to Barnard's Castle to test his eyesight or something. I can't even remember. It's something ridiculous. But it's funny because everyone knows the context. But don't you need to know context in order to find things funny? A lot of the time you do. And there's no question about that. And that's going to be a universal truth. And I would say of getting jokes, but also understanding stories. And it's one of the reasons, one of the justifications for us to exist as literature professors is to do our best to reconstruct enough context so that books make more sense than they otherwise would, right? If we weren't there to help students along with it. However, I would actually make the argument that, especially with a good and relatively recent and up-to-date translation, E.D. Grossman's 2003 translation of Don Quixote into English, very readable, really captures some of the flow and wit and speed of the original. Yes, the book is still very funny today. You don't get all of the jokes. You really don't. But you don't need to because he has so many damn jokes. And it's not just jokes. He creates situation comedy. And give you just one of countless examples. We could just talk for so long about which one am I going to come up with right now. The character decides at some point that he really has to rival the great knights that he's reading about. And so he decides and he declares to Sancho that he's now going to perform his greatest deed. And that his greatest deed is going to be to go crazy over the loss of his lady love, Dulcinea. And the reason he's going to do this is because Ronaldo, also Orlando, Orlando Furioso, also did this. But he, because of course then Sancho says, but Dulcinea hasn't abandoned you. In fact, 
Dulcinea, we've never even seen her before. So how could you possibly know that she's abandoned you? And Quixote then pauses and he says, therein, Sancho, lies the brilliance of my ploy. Because if Orlando achieved greatness for having gone crazy for a reason, how much cooler is it going to be when I go crazy for no reason whatsoever? This is funny, I would argue. If you're not laughing when you're reading that, it doesn't matter if it's 2023 or 1605. This is very funny. And yeah, you get a little bit of context, but you don't need it. Thinking of reception, I just struck there by the idea of it being good to read it in up-to-date English translation. Sometime between 1608 and 1610, the English playwrights John Fletcher and Francis Beaumont incorporated parts of the novel into their play The Coxcomb which is several years, two to four years before the official English translation. Do we know much about the reception of the novel in 17th century England and, by extension, elsewhere beyond Spain? No, I mean, it clearly made an impression. I think it was ultimately 1612 that the translation came into English. And remember, we use the word translation now. These were essentially new versions that were inspired by the translators having read Cervantes. It clearly made an impact. We perhaps know a little bit more about the impact that it made in different cultures other than England, but not only is the coxcomb that you're referring to, it's extant, but there are not extant texts that we know by reference, and most famously, Cardenio, that Shakespeare purportedly co-wrote shortly after, perhaps, translation in 1612 came out, so a couple of years before both authors died. And Cardenio, of course, is perennially the, the butt of jokes around Shakespeare's birthday, when it's purported that Cardenio has finally been found again. So very clearly, Shakespeare and other great writers and playwrights of the time were reading at least translations or versions that had been passed down, as they did from other cultures as well, obviously absolutely seeped in Renaissance culture of Italy. But they were reading Cervantes and found a lot to borrow from, as great authors always did at the time. And Cervantes himself was, of course, borrowing too. You mentioned earlier the great context of this novel, and I want to come back to that, that it's written at a time when the world is expanding with trade and scientific invention and foreign cultures coming into view and, of course, war. How did this impact Cervantes' identity and Spanish identity as a whole? So deeply. I guess I would make the argument that there couldn't have been any Don Quixote if it hadn't been for Cervantes living the life that he did, which was an itinerant life from early on. It was a life of a soldier, the life of an adventurer, the life of a traveler, what you would call actually quite accurately. There's a whole genre of literature, the picaresque, which refers to literature of roguery, of living your life by your wits. Boy, in a real person's life, to have reflected that kind of literary genre. I can't think of an author who lived a more roguish in that sense life than Cervantes. And at the same time, not just inspired by trying to get the best for himself, but really inspired by ideals, by going out there and thinking at first, all right, this is what one needs to do. You live your life as a life of bravery. You fight for a cause. You risk everything. And then to suffer the disappointment of saying, but this state that I fought for, this religion that I fought for, they say these things about other people in the world, and I've actually gone and lived with those people and encountered them. And I've found humanity and love and fidelity in cultures that my own culture is telling me are literally infidels, but I'm finding the opposite. And so he then goes and he describes at a very human level with people from North Africa, of a completely different religion. He brings them into his stories. He describes situations of translation between cultures. 
And some of the most deeply moving moments are when you have people, and particularly men, a father who can't speak any Spanish. And so Cervantes is imagining the conversation as his daughter is carried away by the man she's fallen in love with on a boat to escape slavery. And that Muslim father, a wealthy Muslim father, crying his eyes out on the shore saying, take anything of mine, take all of my wealth, take all of my goods, but give me my daughter back. And to be able to tell a story like that in the context, as we were just talking, of a book that is raucously funny, and then you have these moments where you actually have to tear up because of the extraordinary levels of empathy that Cervantes was capable of as an author. All of that could only occur because this particular man was living at this particular time and on the front wave of that expansive world where generation or two earlier, the average person would never have moved more than maybe seven kilometers from the place where that person was born and now you can literally be born and then die on the other side of the world. Or be born, travel, fight, inherit, earn. You could be born poor. You can come back wealthy, having established yourself in the colonies, and then come back and then die again within seven kilometers of your own birthplace. But now a completely self-made man, as it were. One of the most striking and sobering aspects of Cervantes' own life is the detail of his five-year imprisonment in Algiers. And it seems particularly bleak and unrelenting. Is that the moment when his loss of faith in his ideals comes about, when his view of warfare changes? I think there's no one particular moment, but certainly that experience was transformative in so many ways, and not just in negative ways. Captivity was no joke. He could have lost his life at any moment. He could have lost it in particularly gruesome ways. He could have been tortured to death, as many of his fellow slaves were. And not only that, what he constantly, from all the documents that we're able to review, and from what we can ascertain by eyewitness reports at the time, he behaved with extraordinary courage during this period of time as well. He really didn't want to be a slave in Algiers. He would do anything and use his ingenuity, which was considerable, and his ability with people, which was considerable, to try to create avenues for escape. And on four different occasions, he tried it. And on four different occasions, he and his fellow conspirators were caught and some lost their lives as a result. And over again, people would say Cervantes would offer himself up instead of those who were punished. He desperately wanted not only to get himself out of slavery, but to get his compatriots out of slavery. And then ultimately, when he was released, it was a ransom that was paid. And the money was sent, in fact, to a ransom someone else, but they didn't have enough money for that other person. And then his captors, who had insisted all along that Cervantes, because of the letters that he carried from Juan of Austria, who had been his commanding officer in the wars prior to his captivity, he must be much more important than Cervantes actually was. And they were always holding out during these years for a higher ransom. And they finally gave up on that and said, okay, we'll take the money for this guy and put him at the last possible moment on the boat. His brother had already gotten away earlier and Cervantes went back. And it was after that, it was after all of this suffering and after all of this sacrifice, he was writing, he was trying his hand at novels, at theater. 
Nothing was really breaking for him, and he was trying to get what you could call a sinecure, a nice, comfortable government position, and he was not getting any kind of an answer. He wasn't getting any kind of face time from people who were government officials who should have been recognizing his sacrifices. And I think that ultimately was the straw that broke the camel's back and led him to say, listen, I'm going to have to live by my wits as a writer. I'm going to start telling some truths. And then we have this idea that being a soldier is somewhat like tilting at windmills, I suppose. (laughs) One has to feel positive about his achievements so late in life. And the time he takes to write novels is a very comforting thing for writers to hear. I want to ask you one more question which speaks to how literary scholars think about the author. Your book weaves together the threads of Cervantes' life and the legacy of this extraordinary novel. And so the question is, is it fair to examine a man's life through the lens of his art and his art through the lens of his life? Can we really trace these two things together? I hope it's fair. I certainly understand and developed as a literary theorist in times when we also heard the possibility of the intentional fallacy and the idea that you need to take a work and look at it on its own. And I understand that there's something like an aesthetic or formalist reading, which tries to bracket that out and not consider the life. But I would think at this point, myself and perhaps a lot of others who have been duly educated by the long 20th century of thinking about ways of reading literature have ultimately adopted a kind of eclectic approach where you say, look, yeah, it doesn't mean that something that you learn about the life of an author will indelibly imprint itself in a way that you can't make aesthetic judgments about a work that are in some ways independent of that. But saying that doesn't mean that knowing a whole lot about both an author and his or her life and the context of production isn't going to help you, as I said before, reconstruct a historical context that's going to be a helpful filter for understanding that work. So in a case like The Man Who Invented Fiction, for example, I enter into the debate a little bit explicitly as well with out-and-out old, if you will, historicists approach Quixote who make this claim, look, all the book ever was a funny book, a satirical book. Cervantes says so in the prologue. He's not trying to do anything else. This big kind of world-changing, ironic approach that someone like Eginton is so imposing on the past, kind of things that didn't even exist, like these philosophical interpretations of irony. And my response to that, of course they didn't exist. Part of what the Germans were like, Hegel and Schlegel, what they were actually coming up with and what they themselves attributed their ideas to was the fact that the ground out of which they came up with these ideas was written by people before them, among which Cervantes. So, of course, Cervantes himself would not have had the same philosophical tools to analyze this. We wouldn't expect him to either. But that doesn't mean that the kind of innovations that he developed at the time and that led to the kind of writing and world-making that comes out of his writing didn't, in fact, influence and impact thinkers who would ultimately come up with the philosophical ideas that, for that very reason, then become pertinent for analyzing his work. Well, that is a wonderful answer. And it speaks to what is so wonderful about your book, which is that... The Man Who Invented Fiction is a story about a work, it's a story about a life, and it's also a story about an age. And it's wonderful on all of those counts. Thank you so much for joining me and completely enlightening me with regards to Cervantes. And this has been a really enjoyable chat. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Suzanne. I've really enjoyed talking with you as well. And I really appreciate the very kind words that you had to say about the book. 
Thanks to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and my researcher, Esther Arnott. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. We're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects. So drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on Twitter at notjusttudors. Also, if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts, do sign up to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast. And please rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find not just the Tudors. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.